We live in a world that is trivializing the human condition and providing a thousand soporifics and distractions and medications. And all of that is helping people avoid appointments with themselves. And the second half of life begins whenever you really keep that appointment with yourself. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. This podcast conversation with James Hollis is distinctive in several ways. First, Jim is a celebrated Jungian analyst and prolific author who thinks about creativity and transformation from a perspective unique among the guests of this program to date. Second, his ideas about creativity are pertinent not just to artists and designers, but to all of us who strive to find meaning in our careers and in our lives. And finally, Jim's work has had a profound influence in my own life, and I am indebted to him on many levels. As such, this was a particularly important conversation for me and carried a special resonance. Some additional background on Dr. James Hollis. He is a Zurich-trained Jungian analyst and currently serves as the executive director of the Jung Society of Washington, D.C. He was the co-founder of the Philadelphia Jung Institute and its first director of training. He is vice president emeritus of the Philemon Foundation, dedicated to publishing the unpublished works of Jung. He was the founder and first director of Jungian Studies for Saybrook University, a project he and I worked on together. And he is the director emeritus of the Houston, Texas Jung Educational Center. He has published 15 books and over 50 articles and has mentored Jung societies on four continents for nearly 40 years. In our conversation, recorded a few blocks from the Capitol in Washington, D.C., we discuss the creative potential of entering worlds of uncertainty, the role of dreams as an entry point into the imagination, and how we can understand our creativity as a response to the summoning of the soul. I like to begin with all my guests, really, to talk about um, their own sense of their creativity, but to go back to their memory of their creative spirit as children mm-hmm. and wondered if we could start there with you and if you could just explore a little bit or recount a little bit that memory. Well, I think all of us as children have an inherent desire to know and we're imbued as a species with the sort of impulse to wonder, what does this mean? Who are you? Who am I? And uh, from the very beginning, we start making stories. As a child, I'm, I can remember uh, when I swung on a, on a backyard swing, when I climbed a tree, or when I could reach somehow by jumping from a fence to the roof of our garage, as far as I was concerned, I was flying an airplane. I, I grew up at a time when World War II was going on and was very cognizant of airplanes and, and had a great uh, fascination with them. And, and so part of my life of fantasy was I would get up there and imagine that I was flying over the world. And um, it, was, it was, again, trying to give a sense of the magnitude of the world out there, mm. again, arising out of a sense of wonder and of curiosity. And one often has to ask oneself, um, so what happens to that wonder and that curiosity 
because uh, routinization, as Shelley pointed out many years ago, is the enemy of spontaneity. It's the enemy of the imagination. And we all get routinized. Life is routinized. We get rewarded for one-sided behavior. We get pushed into channels owned by schedules and so forth. And, and so often that creativity is pushed underground. But frankly, it comes out in other places, such as our dreams and our psychopathology. Right. And our work. I mean, part of the reason work. I ask this question is because I'm interested to trace who the guests are from how they remember themselves, what that creative spirit was as a child, and how it's manifesting today. Well, I certainly, to be a little more literal in my own life, I, I grew up in a family that was essentially governed by poverty, um, by the, the impact of the Great Depression, by lack of education, lack of cultural opportunity, and so forth. And their core message to me as a child, and it was meant to be protective, not constrictive, was stay at home. We'll sort of take care of each other. You know, we'll circle the wagons and try to protect each other. And there was something inside of me that said, but life has to be more than this. And so my good fortune was I, I learned to read. And I think of books at some level saving my early life, saving the spirit that was there. Mm rather than succumb to the weight of environmental factors. And, and, and the well-meaning instructions of parents, they, they were never wishing to be harmful, but their, their message was constrictive. Um, I, I made friends with a librarian at the city, and um, she recognized earlier, this kid's a reader, and she told me after a very short time, you don't have to stay uh, in the children's section. You can go anywhere you want in the library, which was a real gift to me. Mm. And she even showed me downstairs where they had back collections of everything. So I'd love to go back and look at Time magazine in 1933 to see what they were saying about Hitler at that time, you know, that kind of thing. So those were in the formative grade school years. And it led to a love of learning, led to idolization of teachers, and it led me ultimately to the first half of my life in academia. And I've essentially devoted my entire adult life to some form of education, although it, it, it changed in its focus at, at midlife, certainly. And so let's talk about that change. You pursued your college and graduate work, too, in the humanities? Yes, yes I did, yes. And I actually had a doctorate before I was 27, and which is too young, but I did. They let you into the adult section, so you had they, a lot of time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, right. So. I'd started early. And, and I, I was teaching, and I loved teaching. And uh, was sailing along, had achieved all of the goals that I had for my life, including f family goals and so forth. And at age 35, more or less right on schedule, hit a real midlife depression. And that sent me to my first hour of therapy quite reluctantly because I, I, I'm sorry to confess up to that point sort of had the uh, notion that if you need someone else's help, you just haven't worked hard enough to figure it out yourself. But I, I now know how foolish that was because in a certain way we dig ourselves a hole and we find ourselves in that hole with a shovel and you think, well, I better apply the shovel more assiduously and the hole gets deeper for some reason. And so that was the beginning of a very humbling experience and began requiring me to look within and to begin to realize that underneath all of creative process, there's a mysterious energy at work that comes out of the human psyche. So while I devoted a lot of time to studying the literature and the arts and the religious and mythological uh, uh, gifts that we have, East and West, uh, I was driven to ask the question, but from whence did they come? And what is this in service to 
the the person, the creative person uh, at heart. Uh, where do these um, generative projects come from in us? And the answer is we really don't know. Although sometimes we can see it's an inherent desire found, of course, in the child, as you pointed out, of curiosity and wonder. And many times, though, it's coming out of pathology. And I want to depathologize pathology here for a moment and just remember it's the Greek word for suffering. So the suffering of the soul is called psychopathology. Mm. And in, in my business, rather than to try to say how quickly do we get rid of psychopathology, which is everybody's desire and fantasy, understandably, we rather ask the question, so why has it come? What is it asking of me? So I had to ask myself the question, since you've achieved your ostensible goals, why were you taken over by this depression? So from a psychodynamic standpoint, rather than say, well, how quickly did we medicate that out or apply a different set of behaviors, which under certain circumstances could be helpful, but often misses the point. The real question was, why is the psyche autonomously withdrawn its approval and support from the places where your ego consciousness is investing its energies? Your values are neither good nor, nor bad. It's just that the, there's some part of you that is operating from a quite different center of knowing and a quite different uh, opinion about these things, and it's expressing that opinion. So the question that would have never occurred to me at the time, or most of us, is what does the psyche want? What is the depression asking of me? And, and part of what I began to realize was then this is, this is a more interesting <laughs> subject matter than that which I'm teaching. I value what I'm teaching. And, and by the way, I, I realized that in talking to 18 to 20-some-year-olds, um, uh, they, they, they didn't know anything about that either. They were swimming in it, but they didn't know much about it. And, and I realized then the need for a conversation with different folks at different stages. And that led me from working uh, in my personal analysis into retraining as, as Jungian. And I studied at the Jung Institute in, in Zurich and was there several years and returned to America and continued to be in academia for a few years. But the adult conversations in the long run proved to be more interesting, more challenging to me than talking to undergraduates. So I then transitioned to a, a, adult uh, conversation, so to speak. So a couple of follow-up questions. One is, do you see, or does it make sense even to conceive of these moments where we turn, where something happens, something is triggered, that separation between the inner life and the outer life becomes mm -hmm. unbearable in a certain kind of way. Could you characterize that as some interruption of the creative spirit? Do you perceive that as the soul, to use your word, summoning us to live a more creative life in a way? Does that language make sense to you? Oh, it certainly does. In other words, in, in depathologizing psychopathology, what I was really saying was there's something in us that's seeking to create a new attitude a new behavior, a new perspective on our own life, and sometimes new values. Its insurgency is something that we can regress, we can resist, we can, we can medicate, we can try to disassociate from it, but it usually intensifies. And, and again, the question is, what area of life or, or what attitude or what practices are now being summoned and I, I have to, in some way, acknowledge and, and admit, I have a colleague in Toronto who said once we all entered Zurich on our knees, which was his way of saying, 
everybody who went there for retraining had, you know, achieved a professional life and, and cultural success, as however you measure that, elsewhere in the world. But but something had had begun to gnaw inside. Something begun to persist and not go away. Or or that one was meeting oneself at 3 a.m. in the morning, you know, the hour of the wolf, and not liking what one saw. And and that's the summons to creativity of another source. Mm-hmm. Now, to choose an obvious example of that, uh, sleep research tells us that we average six dreams per night. Now, of course, no one remembers that many, but that's roughly 42 a week. And nature doesn't apparently waste energy. It's obviously doing something important for the system. And part of it can be simply sort of processing the raw material that life hits us with every day. So when people have been able to sleep but deprived of dreaming, they they can often, after a few days, wind up hallucinating as if somehow that material has to be processed Mm. regardless. Mm. But if we begin to pay attention to it, then we realize there's an extraordinary creative process in the human psyche. In other words, today I could say to you quite literally, if it were for dreams alone, I would be uh, an analyst um, because I am always astonished at that creative power that exists in any of us. It can, as we all know, reach back into the third grade and pull a child out of the (laughs) memory bank that we have not thought of in decades, and yet there he or she is in living color. Um, We we can create figures. We can draw them from movies. Uh, We can uh, image them from our our sort of continuing dialogue with our parental influences, etc. But all of that, in a certain way, is happening autonomously and outside consciousness. And I've often said to people, after we've looked at a dream, particularly a powerful one. Well, did you make that up? And of course, it's as if I've accused them of plagiarism. You say, oh, no, 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 I didn't. And I said, well, yeah, but it's your dream. And so we have to say there's some locus of energy, some locus of of purposeful, meaningful uh, energy in you that is seeking to connect to you. And it can connect by way of the psychopathology or, or sudden impulse or a mood state but this is one of the vehicles through which it generates, it creates um, a set of images, the tracking of which over time, and they are very elliptical, these dreams, certainly, and, and elusive. But over time, their tracking leads one, I think, to a greater sense of personal authority and personal uh, sense of grounding in one's own identity. In other words, if I know there's something inside of me that really knows what's right for me, and, and will speak to me. And if I can stop and pay attention to that over time in a disciplined and humble way, then that's a powerful source of guidance. With the assumption, of course, that that guidance is for your own good, right? That's the right, that it, that is the right guide for you to listen to. Well, there's an important distinction here. To say it's right for me, it's, it's right for nature. It won't necessarily be right for my social life won't be necessarily right for my comfort. I don't think it was comfortable for me to go study in a foreign land um, and often have to be away from family doing that. It was only necessary. Um, Something inside required it or die. And one thing is clear to me is the psyche is always wishing to grow and wishing to develop. And in a development, that's what we call a passage. And our lives are filled with passages, some very large and some, you know, smaller passages. But in every passage, something gets played out, something dies, something gets exhausted. 
the old map no longer is applicable to the territory, and then you're in that terrible in-between, and that's when people sometimes come into therapy. And, and you have to sort of hold that until the new emerges. Mm. And what is new is not necessarily going to be comfortable. Mm. It might ask of you change. Mm. As you were referencing earlier, there's also some level of sacrifice that one mm -hmm. has to make. Mm -hmm. What is it ultimately that pushes us over that line to make sure that mm -hmm. we do listen and can do that consciously realizing the sacrifice that's involved? Well, first of all, remember sacrifice, sacra facere, means to make sacred. So it's a summons from the ordinary social sphere in which we spend our daily lives into a, some sacred realm where things in some way really matter. It's an introduction of a vertical element into the horizontal existence that we normally live. Secondly, I use the phrase change or die. Uh, in my case, I felt that imperative. If something didn't get addressed inside, I was going to die. Mm. If not literally, I was going to die psycho-spiritually. And again, none of that was comfortable. It was a period of enormous sacrifice. And Jung pointed out once, he said, sometimes an individual has to leave the collective, at which point it will appear from outside as narcissistic or self-indulgent, when in fact it's a, it's a vocation, a calling, that he or she must answer or die. And, and that debt, he said, and he used the word debt, that debt is repaid by returning to the collective and bringing whatever it is you've learned along the way. Right. And I would add to this, um, I think these summonses call, come to everyone from time to time. Not everybody takes it on. Uh, and then you have to ask yourself, all right, where does that unlived life go? And it winds up often in uh, self-medication, it winds up in depression, winds, winds up in a sense of kind of aimlessness, uh, a loss of purpose. And in some way, those are sicknesses of the soul, which which are so common sure, in our culture. Sure, You know, it's interesting. It reminds me um, of the trajectory of a lot of our students at Art Center as well, and uh, the way uh, artists and designers will talk about their work almost like a compulsion. It's a necessity to do it. Mm -hmm. And for some, it's also it, they're not becoming, uh, you know, business people or accountants or lawyers or doctors. They're they're becoming artists, and they they are they're called to that. Mm -hmm. And they, they need to do that at some sacrifice, however. Of course. And, and the parallel is striking to me in terms of what you're talking about, choosing that path of the creative life in a very specific kind of way, yeah. even and, though we all need to choose the path of creative life, I yeah. think. And that's the difference between job and vocation. You know, job is how you pay your bills, and we all have to figure out how to do that. <clears throat> vocation, vocatus, vocal, how to call. What, what's your calling as a human being? It's not just one thing, it's many things, but most of all, your calling is to become a vehicle for what's to, what wants to enter life through you. You know, as children, we ask the question, what does the world want of me? What do my parents want? What's the school teacher want? What do the playmates want? You know, ultimately, what's the partner and employer want? You know, reality-based questions, because we have to meet the world as it is. We don't get to choose it. But if we get stuck at that point, then we are creatures of fate. We are creatures of whatever our environment messages might have dictated to us. Beyond that, though, is a question in the second half of life. And by second half, I'm speaking less chronologically, but whenever one really 
keeps that appointment with one's own soul. And sometimes that comes when a partner dies or one is down, downsized at work or retirement, facing a health crisis, a divorce, a thousand venues, but where you sort of have to face who you are and say, who am I apart from my roles or my history, all of which may be rich and valuable or not, but who am I apart from that? And then the question is, what is it that I am to serve that is in some way uh, being a vehicle for the expression of the life force? And that requires sacrifice yeah. because it's not about ego comfort. You know, this is, this is all so, so beautiful and so meaningful to me personally. And at the same time, you know, I, I, I just flashed on my, on my father and his life yep. and growing up in the Depression. And needing to, as a child, to help his family out. And he delivered ice and he mm -hmm. delivered medicines for a, for a drugstore. And then he found his way to becoming a dentist. And, I mean, he had to follow a certain path. He didn't have the capacity, really, to follow some of the things that you're saying. He had to do those kinds of things. Or at mm -hmm. least, I can't imagine he would have seen the possibility otherwise. And I guess the question, therefore, is to what extent... Is this work as meaningful and as important as it is? I don't miss that point. Who's it for? And can everybody do it? And does life's necessity sometimes impose on us in a way that makes it impossible to follow that path? Well, the answer to that last question is obviously yes. There are people whose lives are governed by exterior reality. And, and I want to acknowledge that from the beginning. Uh, my own father was pulled out of eighth grade, literally before child labor laws and sent to work because the family business, which was farm implements, had gone under in the first great wave of the Depression. And he worked also in a pharmacy. <laughs> and uh, uh, then later he worked in the factory the rest of his life and had a, a miserable work life, but he supported his family, which was what it meant to be a responsible adult then. Right. So nothing I'm saying here is about shunning that kind of responsibility. Often people have said to me in so many words, should I do this or do that? And I say, yes, <laughs> you know, right. figure out a way to do both. Right. I mean, I continue to support my family. I worked underground in Switzerland. I taught English. I did a number of things over there. Um, I continue to run back and forth and, and, and keep my academic position alive, etc. My point simply is I had to figure out a way to do both. Just do that or die, as I said. question that's been on my mind with you and your work for quite a while now has to do with your relationship with Jung, who obviously gives you a framework and a context and a way of seeing and very rich questions that you are continually wrestling with. I'm curious about your relationship with that and where mm -hmm. your creativity, where Jim Hollis's creativity and your own thinking comes and what that layering is about with you and, mm -hmm. and the work of Jung. Well, first of all, Jung as a person was a highly flawed individual like all the rest of us, but I, I think he saw more deeply into the nature of the modern condition and, this, and yet the timeless zone of the human psyche than any other psychologist. Uh, as you probably know, uh, Freud's psychology stayed pretty much rooted in the biological and instinctual drives, which are real and important. And... Adler very early said, but we're also social creatures and we're functions of our family and our culture and, and so forth. And that's absolutely the case. 
Jung also brought in that third element, which is um, the spiritual function. He said, we are creatures who suffer the loss of meaning and, and urgently are desirous of meaning. And, and when the materials of our daily life as provided by fate are insufficient, we begin to create them ourselves as, as a child does in fantasy and, and so forth. You know, the dreams and visions we have about ourselves are part of how the psyche is seeking this expression in the world and has beginning its foray and entering into the, the larger world. He also valued creativity rather than seeing it as a pathology, as uh, Freud said. You know, if he, he saw art as, you know, in a sense, coming out of, of instinctual blockages and frustrations. And presumably, if, if that's, you know, impasses resolved, the, <laughs> you wouldn't have to write a poem or symphony or paint a painting or something like that. Whereas quite to the contrary, in a book uh, published in 1912 called Symbols of Transformation, Jung, in fact, posited the opposite. He said, that life is central to being human. Our effort to try to create um, a response to the inherent mystery, wonder, and terror of this world. And it's out of that interface that the arts are created. Now, to give you an example, just to go back to your earlier question, for being in, in uh, academia for my early career, I was under that sort of publisher parish sort of um, uh, expectation. So I, I early on wrote a book on Harold Pinter, the first one published in America, the, the English playwright. Uh, and then it all dried up. And one of the things I was doing was teaching all the time, trying to support my family. But also inside there was something rebelling. There was something resisting it. I hated to have a gun at my head. So it was after I left academia and after my last child had finished college and had driven off to her new life, all of that energy came back. And I've said to people, for example, when their children leave or, or they've lost a marriage or, or something substantial has changed, right, all the energy you spent there might have been very well spent. You know, consider it well invested. But now that's been done and that energy is going to come back to you. What are you going to do with it? And as my daughter was driving across the United States to move to a new job in a new state, that's when I started writing the book, The Middle Passage, based on, and I hadn't thought about it, but I mean, I'd thought about not necessarily writing a book, but I started trying to ask myself, why is it so many people coming with such different presenting issues and life stories are underneath that exhibiting a certain kind of pattern going on here? And I thought, well, that's what I really want to try to explore. And I didn't know the answer to that question. So I started writing about it. So each one of the, since that time, 14 books have come out and there's a 16th in, in process as we speak. And each one of them has come out of reflecting on what's happening in those hourly sessions with individuals. Clearly Jung gives you a framework. Clearly mm -hmm. Jung gives you yep. a way of, of seeing, of thinking, of asking kinds yep. of questions. But you also have your own stick as you reach out, mm -hmm. right? You are making connections as Jim Hollis. Yep. And I'm interested in that relationship that you have where your own creative mm -hmm. work comes through in terms of your relationship with Young. Well, I, I think it links up with what I also indicated. I have always been devoted to education. It's, it's been a kind of mission, I would say. So I see the books also as modes of teaching. And without intending it, I mean, I'm only in recent years recognizing it, my project for the last 
30 years has been to take a very complicated psychology of Jung. There's a lot of arcana there and translate it to the general public to make it available. And I, th I think possibly underneath all of that, there's an archaic history. <laughs> and, and that history was if I could have helped my family of origin, if I could have helped my parents, I would have. I could not. I was a child. I don't know that that's a factor. I think that's part of what has given the um, fuel in the <laughs> dynamo. And, and in a way, it's like I, I see these books as tools to help people empower themselves. It's a, actually a great transition to this question I wanted to, to probe about. I mean, you're a writer, you're a teacher, you're an analyst, you're a presenter. You've got a creative life in many, many ways. And I think I recall that you once said to me that um, a lot of your books come to you in dreams or when you're sleeping. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, they do. And that that's the call to do it. So that sure. that begins, that's a kind of entry point into mm -hmm. your own creativity I, mm -hmm. I, as a writer, I would, I would imagine. Sure. And that's not an unknown phenomenon. Other writers have talked about it and other scientists have talked about it, you know. There are various scientists who were, went to sleep working on a problem and they wake up and there it is. And right, right. On more than one occasion, I woke up with paragraphs rolling out. And I remember one specific example as I woke up and probably at five in the morning and the sentences were saying something like, and I, I don't have them memorized, um, we all like to think someday we could walk into a sunlit meadow where all of our conflicts are resolved and, and you know, life's troubles are put behind us and so forth. And there's a full two paragraphs that came roaring out. So I rushed out to the office and, and typed them out. And they're the opening paragraphs of... Um, a book called Swamplands of the Soul, right. which is an exploration of, of how the psyche from time to time takes us to places like, you know, panic, addictions, depression, loss, and, and um, you know, guilt and shame and jealousy and so forth. Would you characterize your creative work as entering a world of uncertainty and navigating your way in that world of uncertainty as you make, as you write, as you teach, as you present? Absolutely. Now, to give it... A clinical frame, Marie-Louise von Franz said once, um, who was an associate of Jung, she said, I'm not God. I don't know what's right for a person. She says, but I, I try to ask probing questions and I attend to that person's process so carefully and with a discipline that that person starts adopting that attitude. And out of that, what is right for them can emerge. Now, she was very thoughtful about not trying to usurp that internal authority of the individual and realizing the only authority that ultimately matters is, you know, the sacredness of your own soul and what it's trying to say to you. Um, and so I, I, I think living with uncertainty and ambiguity, which was intolerable to me as a child and to most of us most of the time, has been a... a lesson learned the hard way through the years. In other words, as a therapist, I've learned patience and powerlessness. And I hate both of them, but they're very real. I can't fix anybody, but I, I've seen the process help them. I'm not able to speed it up. We'd all like to speed it up, but it has to unfold in its way. And it's all ambiguous. And what is right for that person is so to speak, known by the gods <laughs> or known by their own mm -hmm. souls. And, mm -hmm. and I can't say from, I might have a strong opinion to be sure,
but I have to with you know withhold that opinion until that person reaches some appropriate conclusion. Right. And what's behind my question is that my own work, my own conversations with artists and designers, mm-hmm. who most often that world of uncertainty that they navigate, that's the creative world. That's where mm-hmm. discoveries happen. That's where there's a dynamic. That's where there's a dialogue among parts. That's where it all unfolds mm-hmm. and upends you know, the popular notion that we go, uh, we, we move as creative people by marshalling forward some great vision that we're executing against. Absolutely. No, because otherwise what we're doing is executing, so to speak, five-year plans or corporate right. goals. And, right. and that comes from our minds and our intentionality, which can be productive, but it's the unknown factor that's there. So there's an old saying, a person doesn't know the material until he or she is obliged to teach it to others. Well, it's also true that, you know, we don't know where we're headed until we begin to dialogue with that, which is seeking its expression through us. So I can, I have an idea of where a book is going in terms of the general topics, but what I think, feel, believe out of that emerges. So to some degree, and this is why I find it both intimidating and challenging and exciting, is it is an unfolding process of discovery. Mm-hmm. There's something about also having an insight click into place or even even a way of, of saying that, that I couldn't have invented without going through that process of engaging uncertainty. So I, I just mentioned I've started a, another book recently. I'm also sitting here with apprehension. Will I be able to finish it? I don't know hmm. because right now, I know only the general topics, and I'm entering into that world of ambiguity. And I have to sit there and, and suffer that. But I, I th- what I found, though, is, is you sort of nudge that <laughs> topic, and something starts nudging you back, you see? Right, exactly. And in that world of uncertainty, things begin to happen because you are creatively engaged in that world. Mm-hmm. And you are making, in this case, writing. And that is a way to knowing what it is you want to, or at least approaching what what it is you want to say or what you want to explore. Sure, absolutely, yeah. I would love to use this moment and this opportunity to explore with you. You're unique in this way in terms of the people I've talked to for this podcast, but the creativity of the therapeutic context. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm interested on both sides. I'm interested in your own creativity, your own improvisation on the one hand, Mm -hmm. and on the other hand, the creative engagement of the patient and Mm -hmm. that and the ways in which the whole project really seems to me one in which, you know, two people are going into places of uncertainty and a creativity Mm -hmm. can then unfold. Well, and just to give my own example again, uh, at midlife when I had my first hours of therapy, it was to treat the depression, not to change my life, sure. right? right? Not to move in. Little a did you know. Yeah. Little did I know, you know, maybe we wouldn't show up for those appointments. But uh, <laughs> at the point was the psyche was really insistent. And part of the creative process is to also recognize what is needed by the moment. In other words, sometimes people come thinking the therapist has answers and for a certain fee will disclose them to you, what you should do with your life kind of thing. And that's seldom the case, obviously. <laughs> um, it, and sometimes 
you know, that, that's a person who, for example, needs to be introduced more and more to the notion of personal authority, for example. But what is right for you is inside of you, not outside of you kind right. of thing, you know. Um, sometimes this means having to respond with silence, which is not necessarily comfortable. Uh, sometimes it means that a person really needs um, support at that moment or reassurance. Or sometimes that person needs an illustration of something. If one needs to see an example of how that, you know, how I, how can I understand that psychological phenomenon? Well, here's a picture or story to help explain that. And there's a certain, well, the person, the hour, so to speak, is directed by the client or patient. There's a certain creativity in the shaping of that. Just as a school teacher, I, I when I teach classes, I, I shape the hour or I shape the sessions depending on the amount of time available in the audience and that sort of thing. And that shaping is an inherently creative process different for everybody. Do you see it as improvisational? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And, and then the other person in some way is also bringing a world of, you know, expectations, presumptions, and, and creative process. Um, and, and sometimes the, the most unexpected and inexplicable thing will come out of a session. You know, it's almost as if something is bubbling inside, and if you take the lid off, you'd be surprised what might come up. Right, but the, it seems, that's the, that seems to be the project. The project is to find the unexpected. Yeah. The, the, yeah. A lot of artists and designers I talk to try to create a context so that surprise can come to them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Others talk about it in terms of recognition, which is an interesting distinction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those who wish to be surprised by through the discovery, those who want to know again something they already knew but yes. don't know it anymore and go through the creative process maybe to find it again. Yes. Both are true. Both are true. In other words, as I was giving an example, I get surprised by sort of entering this creative process and seeing what emerges. But some part of it is recognition, mm. after all. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I already know it, but I don't necessarily know what I know. Mm. And that's why I think it's important for people in, say, dream work to recognize something inside of you knows you better than you know you. And, and then something inside of you is, is wiser than you are. And be comforted by that. You won't necessarily be... Wiser than what your ego consciousness brings. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. And you won't necessarily enjoy what it life asks of you. It's a great segue to the next question, and that is your own work on talking about the second half of life, which maybe you can mm -hmm. take a moment for listeners to just mm -hmm. understand what you're interested in there. But the question that I would love for you to get to is, to what extent do we become more sophisticated creative people? Or how do we allow our creativity to take a different shape? Are we better in the second half of life if we're living it in the way you call for? Are we being actually more creative in the sure. way in which we engage sure. in life? Well, as I touched on before, the first half of life, again, speaking very, very loosely when we talk about half, it's not chronologically half, it's psychologically half, is served in a social uh, vector. What does the world want of me? Do, do I agree to that? Do I run from that? Do I try to you know, medicate myself from that? Whatever it is, I'm dealing with that. And then whatever is inherent, if we're privileged to live beyond that, because if a truck runs over me on my 30th birthday, I wouldn't have known the depression at age 35. Um, I would have been a person who served the, the sort of tapes and expectations of his uh, culture at that point. But there's an urgency that comes from below that says, but there, life is asking something else of you. 
And again, it breaks through in different venues. It could come from outer loss or just waking up and feeling dissatisfied with, you know, one's career or one's life or whatever. And it's at that point then that, again, one has to ask these very elemental questions. Who am I apart from my roles? My roles may be fine, like parent and, and partner and citizen, etc., or may not be. But who am I apart from my roles? Who am I apart from my, my history? And more importantly, what is ex seeking expression through me? Because I think when a person starts asking those questions, and I want to point out, those questions are being asked in the unconscious, whether we address them consciously or not. The last book called Living and Examine Life was focusing on about 20 tasks that I try to make the point. These questions are going on daily basis in the unconscious. All I'm trying to do is make them conscious. And is it fair to say that we're better creatives in the second half of life? When we're engaged in that work? When we're engaged, yeah. And it depends on the person because we'll be tied the person who stays stuck in the old structures and the old values, never questioning. I can give you tons of examples who, of people who basically may have come into therapy but were stuck in a religious tradition or in a certain family of origin message or, or a certain understanding of what they were supposed to do and be. And challenging that, even though their psyche is protesting, was a, a step too far. And so if they choose not to do that, then, then they usually go away. Mm -hmm. And I have to ask myself, okay, what happens to the soul then? When Does it dry up and wither? I doubt it. It pathologizes in new ways. And that's one reason why people will turn to all kinds of fads and fashions and medications. I've seen many people turn to medications... And I'm not against medication. I'm just saying they were, the, the reason is they're turning to medication to avoid the hard work of destruction and in-betweenness and then reconstruction. You know, Jim, one of the ways I like to talk about the education that we offer our students at Art Center is that we teach them courage. Mm -hmm. And it seems that what you're talking about now is quite parallel to that. It Absolutely. does require a certain level of courage. Absolutely. I mean, we want our students to have the courage to to, in a way, do exactly what you're talking about so that they can be the best artists and designers possible. Yeah, yeah. And in some way, what that would require of your students is their willingness to suffer, not being in control of that, still paying their bills on the outside, but be willing to be a servant of some energy that wants expression through them. And you're absolutely right. What what psychology can provide us, and not always can it do that, but many times it can, is insight. Then, as Jung pointed out many times, then come the moral qualities of the person. Second is courage. You have to face what you have to face. And thirdly, he said, is endurance or persistence, sticking it out. As you do that, you gain a greater sense of purposefulness, dignity, and depth in your life. More gravitas, you know? We live in a world that is trivializing the human condition and, and providing a thousand soporifics and distractions and medications. And all of that is helping people avoid appointments with themselves. And the second half of life is, begins whenever you really keep that appointment with yourself. And, um, you know, that, that is when life takes on a different savor and a different uh, purposefulness, and it's extremely rich.
half of the mission statement of Art Center is uh, influence change. And I can certainly gather up a lot of what you've said thus far, but I want to ask the question specifically to you about how you think about change. And do you think about change as well as the change you affect in the world? You, Jim Hollis? Well, I don't set out to change anything in the world. I, I, I'm trying to do the thing that makes sense to me. I've had the privilege of having people say that it was helpful to them, which, for which I'm grateful, but that's not why I write. I, I write because, and I teach, because that's somehow what the, the gods, the psyche, um, intended for me. You know, I, I might have had other youthful ambitions, but this is what, what you know, these other forces intended for me. Uh, and, I, and I must say, um, it's been very gratifying to have people say, you helped make sense of something that I've been struggling with, or you gave me permission for something, which is important, or, or sometimes um, I feel less alone as a result of this. I was recently speaking in St. Louis, and, and I said, you know, it was appropriate to our conversation at the time, and I said, you know, many times we will think of ourselves as different or strange because we don't fit in. Well, we're not here to fit in. You know, if you fit in to a crazy world, what does that make you but crazy? And, and maybe you've always felt a kind of exile, but I want you to know there's a community of exiles. They don't have political parties. They don't gather for conventions. Uh, to be an exile is in some way to, to have followed your own star. And there is a community, an invisible community of exiles. Now, I'll give you an example. When I wrote a book on men's psychology a number of years ago called Under Saturn's Shadow, I had men write to me from all over, including the Australian outback. It was amazing the kind of response that I got, saying, I always thought there was something wrong with me. But what you say here is that this is normal and natural to have these fears and these kinds of issues going on. But men don't talk about that. That's part of their dilemma is they're, they're forbidden from talking mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. And so the, when the book talked about that, and, and by the way, that's not a book I wanted to write. I was asked to speak on a subject years ago in Philadelphia, and I got my hand forced into it. And I thought, why is it I'm resisting the subject? And the, the voice came up and said, well, because these things are secrets. Then mm -hmm. I thought, I had to ask myself, wait, 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 let's play that sentence again. What secrets? And that's what I led to. And that was the, the skeleton of the whole talk. And then subsequently the book is talk about male secrets because we have them in, in sort of ingrained in us from childhood on. And as a result, they wind up estranging men from men, men from women, and most of all, men from themselves. And so when men contacted me, which is easier to do in the internet era, that they felt less strange or, or less isolated. That, that was surprising, but of course gratifying. And I was grateful to be able to, you know, in a very small way, be um, an instrument of that. Right. So maybe that's a good way to ask my, my final question to you, really, and that is, what does the world need to change now? And how do you see that project unfolding? I mean, I can see it happening on the indi individual level, for sure, as you've been speaking. Or but maybe that is the answer. I, I think it is the answer. It's, it's hardly satisfying as an answer, but it may be the only answer we have. You know, there, it's a cliche to say, but profoundly true, as cliches often are, you know, the changes in the world start with you. 
They start with you and your children, you and your partner, you and your employees, you and your neighbors, etc. Um, and and unless you know, there's there's also the saying, "Be the change that you wish to see in sure. the world." Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, we're going through vast changes. Uh, I I think we've seen some of those changes emerging, the emergence of women, the emergence of people thoughtful in certain areas, and enormous resistance against that because we talked about ambiguity before. The great toxin of ambiguity has entered into, let's say, the American body politic as well as the Western world. The old fixities, and that's a word I've created, fixities, that is to say certainties, Certainties like gender roles and, and identity, um, socioeconomic roles, uh, expectations for people, racial and sexual practices, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of these things were heretofore thought to either be divinely generated or uh, in that nature of nature itself. When in fact, what we find is these are social constructs. These are created by societies, and as such, we can deconstruct them, and then you're left with that ambiguity. What does it mean to be a woman today? What does it mean to be a man? Well, there's a lot of confusion about that, but it's out of that that comes the new possibility. There's the destruction going on and the enormous reaction against that because it creates also anxiety whereby there's an enormous number of people who would wish to have the world that they thought was the case. <laughs> Never was the case, but what they thought was the case. And as such, you know, represents often a world dependent upon the violation of the souls of tons of tons of persons within it at, at a terrible price. Yeah, I think that's beautifully put. And I want to say, Jim, that you have, as I've told you before, made an enormous difference in my life. And your work has been deeply, deeply meaningful to me. And I'm grateful to you for that. And I'm deeply grateful to you for spending this time with me today. Thank you. It's been my privilege, Lauren. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, consultant Bruce Mason, and post-production services provided by Freedom Podcasting. Thanks for listening.